you don't know who I am, I'm Derek. I'm the director of student ministries here at River City Church. Antley is on vacation. Um, and he left me one instruction, which is a real easy one. He said, don't do anything that I wouldn't do. And that leaves me pretty wide open. So um, I'm going to pray before, before, I, um, before I start this morning. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you just for who you are, what you've done. And God, I just pray right now that you just, um, that you just begin, even in me, just um, to humble me in the way that I speak. And God, I just pray as the words come out that the ones that need to fall to the floor and not be heard are, are just that. And the ones that need to find their way to people's hearts that they do. Um, God, just speak through me, just feeble and fallen and broken clay. Um, just use me this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, fortunately for you, for the in, the in the next month, I get to speak three times, which is pretty rare for me. So I figured, why not do a series, you know? Um, we did a series on giving. So I'm going to do a series on human relationships. And there's a reason that I'm going to do that. For the past couple of months, I've, done, um, I've talked a lot in student ministries with middle schoolers, with high schoolers, and with college students about human relationships, particularly the male and female kind. And I've realized in that there's so much wisdom that I felt like um, the church needs to hear it. The church needs to hear some of the things that, that we learn from Scripture, that we learn from each other um, as we prayed and prepared for uh, a lot of the material that we used. I, mean, I just think there's just a, a wealth of things that are, that are um, in some of the things that we studied. Um, and for, uh, for the college students, it's something that we, um, we obviously are excited about <laughs> in the college ministry because they're at that age where it's like, you know, I need to find somebody. You know what I mean? You kind of get in that, that mode. And we started out at the beginning of the series with like 20 students. And probably near the end of the, the series, I think that at the high point, there was close to 40 students there. So, I mean, you start talking about the male and female dynamic, people start showing up. Um, but particularly this week, what I'm going to be talking about is um, what do we expect and from whom do we expect it? Like, what, you know, what are our expectations going into a relationship? Or what are our expectations inside of our marriages? Because many of us are already married and here. Some of us are hoping to be married and some of us really don't care. But... We all, in some way or another, interact and have this dynamic in relationships. Well, this morning, just to kick off the morning, I'm going to start out with a, a clip from Jerry Maguire. And who's seen Jerry Maguire? Yes, it's always good to see that you're using a clip that people will actually understand. You don't have to set up. Well, anyway, Jerry Maguire is a sports agent. Um, and he kind of has an epiphany that he needs to do things a little differently. And he needs... Fewer clients and more personal attention. So what he does is he forms his own little company or kind of gets booted out of his, his company. Um, and in the process, he falls in like with Renee Zellwinger's character, which I say he falls in like because he's not quite sure that he, if he's in love with her. And she's madly in love with him. And this particular scene is Rod Tidwell, his one and only client. He's having lunch with Rod Tidwell and his wife. And they're sitting there and just watch what, what kind of happens during their little chat you guys i go to see this so-called black film the other day okay honey no more salt for you the biggest game of the season's coming up i don't want you dehydrated for monday night football anyway 20 minutes of coming attractions all black films all violent and i'm talking about brothers shooting brothers i hate you going to movies alone without me 
kind of notice what was going on in that clip, but um, for my purposes, Rod Tidwell and his wife were this perfect, loving relationship. I mean, you look at it, and it's so sweet. They've got, there's just something going on there. There's this passion. There's this excitement for each other. There's this perfection, almost, in the relationship side of things, and then you look at Jerry Maguire and Renee Zellweger's character. I can't remember her name, but she, she's looking at him, and he's kind of looking at her. It's kind of an awkward moment. They're kind of smacking and kissing on each other, and he's like, in his heart and in his mind, he's, he's thinking, I'm definitely not measuring up right here. I'm not the guy that she really wants. And I'm not intimate enough. I'm not doing the things emotionally that I'm supposed to. And in her heart, she's looking at him thinking, I have settled. I have settled for something less than I'm supposed to settle for. He, I've settled for somebody that's in like with me, that, that has issues with intimacy, that it's just, and there's all these expectations, and they've seen this. They see this at lunch. They're looking at it, and it's causing this kind of distraughtness in their heart. And I don't know about you in relationships, but I've, I've felt this way before. I've been on probably both ends of that spectrum. But for me, um, in my, I'm, I've been married for 14 years, got three kids, been through a little bit here and there in my relationship with my wife. And I love, I mean, I love marriage, but a lot of times... You, you miss in certain areas. And things are not as, as they would seem from the outside. And with Beth and I, I kind of don't have a good filter. I don't know if that rings true for many of you. Like when I'm in public, I might say things that you shouldn't say. Like I already found out in the first, first service I've said things that I shouldn't say. But I'm going to say them again for you all because I have no filter. And my wife's not here, so I can say really what I want to. Usually I have her sitting there, and, and I, I kind of glance down, and I see the eyes kind of, woohoo, like, don't go there. And I usually do anyway, and we talk about it later. But I lack a filter. So we go out, and, and we'll be in a conversation. I'll say something to somebody about somebody, something I shouldn't say, um, and she'll kick me under the table, and I have no, you know, I, I just am not subtle. Why are you kicking me in front of everybody? You know, as, as guys will do. And then we'll get home. And then what uh, Beth and I do many times is we, we take the person that we respect, the, like somebody that we really respect, that would never do the things that we do, or at least we think. And she always uses John Piper. He's a preacher, just a great theologian that you would never think would do some of the dumb, stinking things that I've done. So she, she always says, do you think John Piper would act like that? Do you think he would do that? Do you think he treats Noel like that? Huh? And so I, you know, we, and we go back and forth. I say the same thing to her. I've thrown it back on her. She kind of started that whole game. It's not my fault. But I'll say, do you think Noelle would do that to the children? Do you think she would do, chase them around the deal with the thing and do what you do? I doubt it. Yeah. I mean, I, it's so funny. We'll be watching things online. Like, we watch a lot of Mark Driscoll and, and on, online, and 
he's such a he's a he's a dude. I mean, it's just if you ever watch and you want to see a dude, he is a dude. Like he's the way he carries himself. But then his wife gets on stage and he is the sweetest, most loving and tender guy that you can possibly see. And, and when they kind of speak together, I mean, the whole time that they're interacting and doing kind of what Jerry Maguire's doing in, in this scene. I mean, she's poking me going, do you see how he puts his hand on her knee like that? Does the deal, the public display of affection. That's real. Why, why don't you act like that? But anyway, no, it's not, it's not completely like, it's not my life. But you can relate to the idea of not living up to an expectation that somebody in a relationship has for you. And we get this, this whole idea um, doesn't really, it's, it's one of those things that we feel like it's natural, but we are inundated in the culture that we live in with this idea of romantic love being the be-all, end-all of all relationships. Now today, I'm, it's, you're going to think that I'm downing marriage. Now, some of you think that I'm all about marriage. Get them married when they're 20, 21, and ship them off. You know, that's, that's what we do at college ministry. We get them all married. Because I've done tons of weddings in the last two years. It's like the college students come to connect. Next thing you know, they meet. Then I'm doing a wedding six months later. Y'all think that's all we talk about is get it married, get it done, and get on to the business of following Jesus. Well, that's kind of what we, li- we like to say. But there's a little more. I'm going to give you kind of an inside track on how we talk to students and what we say. Because I think it's relevant for the church today. But we're inundated with this idea that romantic love is the be-all, end-all. Romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart and imagination. But it can be excessively dominant in our lives in the way that we think. And it shows in the world that we live in. It shows greatly in the world that we live in. I was looking at um, just reality shows that are based on the male-female dynamic in, in, in relationships and either... You know, finding each other, dating. And I took a small subset. The list was so long, but I'm going to read a few of them. There's so many just reality shows. It's not sitcoms, because we know there's tons of sitcoms about relationships. But here's a short list. The Bachelor. I mean, that's kind of the... I mean, the ratings for The Bachelor are insane. And don't look at me like you don't ever watch The Bachelor. I can see people in here that I know watch it. The Bachelorette, y'all probably watch that more. I don't know why. Blind Date. Y'all remember the show Blind Date? Anybody remember that? If he was on late at night, I'm a late nighter. A millionaire matchmaker, never seen it. Rock of Love, I mean, come on. I'm so glad I don't have VH1 anymore. It's ridiculous. Brett Michaels' version of The Batch, it's just total hedonism. Um, Eliminate, woohoo, that's Amore. Newlyweds, Nick and Jessica, we see how that turned out. That's so mean. Temptation Island, wow. So one person laughs, but you all watched it at one point or another. I've never seen this, but I really want to see it. Farmer Wants a Wife. What is that? It's a show. It's on TV, people. Matched in Manhattan, Joe Millionaire, Average Joe. There's something about Miriam. Paradise Hotel, For Love or Money, Age of Love, Outback Jack, Cheaters. That's quality TV. And Dating in the Dark. Crazy, crazy, crazy. There's tons and tons of information out there in television, media, Every song that you listen to is about this romantic love that we're talking about. And um, a lot of what I'm getting today is coming from a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. It is a fantastic book. It's got this one chapter in it that I'm kind of keying on, but it's awesome in this idea of where are, where's our heart, where's our affection, and do, are we idolizing something that is good? Because marriage is good, relationships are good, but do we put it in a place that's a little bit too high in comparison to the way that we view God? And if we allow the world to affect us in a way that it shouldn't. Okay. Ernest Becker is quoted in this book, um, Counterfeit Guy. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner for his book, Denial of Death. And he says this. For people who come to the conclusion that there is no God, 
They are all grasping for significance and purpose in this life. And what Ernest Becker is, is saying that for somebody that may, you know, maybe grew up in the church or maybe didn't know God at all, but let's just say for this case, somebody that grew up in the church, they finally get to college and they abandon their faith, they're a philosophy major or a science major, and they say there is no God, everything happened by chance. He's saying that they begin grasping for significance and purpose in this life because you've removed something pretty significant. I mean, God does create purpose, you know, and, and there's a realization that, oh, oh, if everything's by accident, then what's my purpose in this life? And he says this, if we are all here by accident, now what? He says the main way we deal with this type of loss is apocalyptic romance. I love that word. I would never come up that word because I'm not that smart. But apocalyptic romance, this idea that the, this be-all, end-all, the thing to end all things, romance, that that's what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to achieve. And this is the unbelieving world that's come up with this concept. But I see it in relationships as I've been in the church, that th- this is something that's bled into the church heavily, that we all of a sudden we put this high value on relationships that shouldn't be there. Now marriage, I'm going to be talking about it again in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to talk about how, you know, what God wants, to, how he wants to leverage marriage to glorify himself and for the kingdom. And I'm not, like I said, you're going to get from me today that you're going to think, he doesn't, he doesn't like marriage. I'm married, been married 14 years, and I love it. If you don't like my talk, you can email me and I'll put you in my spam box. But, <laughs> but the, the, the kind of the crux of today is about expectations and what we expect from each other in these um, relationships. And what Ernest Becker says is we get to this place of apocalyptic romance. And I was just looking through Redbox and seeing just the list of romantic comedies. I mean, it is amazing the amount, it's so cheap to make them and the amount of money that they make on romantic comedies because we watch them. We get excited about the male and female dynamic, that relationship. You can see by, you know, our college series, all the kids show up for that. It's just one of those things that we are taken with. You know, look at the magazine rack. You know, we want to know what's happening with, you know, Angelina and Brad and, you know, we all rooting for Jen to come back into the game. Don't tell me you didn't know. You knew what was going on. But that's what we do. We get wrapped up in this idea. And I love romantic comedies. I really do. And I'm going to quote this one little subset of something uh, Emily Temple wrote. She's in our church. She's here this morning. And she's, I don't know if she's mad that I, I didn't even ask permission because I'm just using it. I'm just citing something that's out there in public domain. Um, she wrote for a Donald, a Donald Miller publication. Um, and here's that. This is, a, this is the excerpt. The, the title of the article, you should go out and look it up. It's called Emotional Porn, Usually Starring Sandra Bullock. There's little doubt that porn is destructive. Just read some, some of the statistics at Triple X Church, which is an accountability software. They do tons of statistics on uh, sexual addiction. But lust and sin aside, porn destroys relationships because it inherently sets unreasonable expectations. While sexual porn sets an impossible physical and behavioral standard, emotional porn presents an unrealistic, utopian view of love. They're both equally unhealthy to fixate on. That's a strong statement, but I like it. The picture of relationship that emotional porn paints is between an unnaturally attractive man and woman who find the answer to all their problems lies in the arms of each other. Incidentally, that woman is usually Sandra Bullock. If the romantic comedy picture of perfection is what we are aiming for in our relationships, it's no wonder many of us fail. I love that. I love the, the, how pointed it is and how just dead on it is on how we view, calling it, I mean, just the strong word, calling it emotional porn. Now, again, I'm not saying don't go out and watch romantic comedies. I'm saying, how do we view that? Are we going to let 
what Ernest Becker calls that apocalyptic idea of the apocalyptic romance find its way into the church and distort our view of what ultimately satisfies us. And who are you looking at in your life to say, I wish I had that. If only I had that. If this is the thing that makes them happy, then it will make me happy. I mean, you may be looking at people in the church, you know, Antley and Laura or even me and Beth. We've got three kids. He's a youth pastor. He lives in Riverside. Nice house. He seems like a sweet guy. Well, let me tell you, I mean, if you get inside the walls of my home, you'll see it's not the picture of perfection. Case in point, my wife is at the mall one day, and she is um, going through the center of the mall where they usually have those fountains, and there's a bunch of kids kind of tossing coins in the, in the fountain, and, and Ella says, I, I want to toss a coin in, in, the, in the deal and, and make a wish or whatever. And Beth's like, I looks for spare change. We never have, if we have spare change, it's spent, I'm telling you, like that. We never have spare change. She's like, I don't have anything. Well, a lady behind her says, oh, I've got something, and gives her the coin. And uh, Ella's getting ready to toss it in. She goes, you know, you've got you to gotta wait. You've got to make a wish. Proclaim your wish before you toss it in. And she reaches back, and she goes, I wish my parents would quit arguing. <laughs> I mean, as loud as she could. Oh. Oh, man. And Beth grabs her and says, let's go find your mother. (laughs) Oh. We do that. We look at other people's stuff and we think it's better than ours and we think, if only we had that, if only we could be that, then life would be better. And in Scripture, it's so well represented. I, I, you know, I, was, I was reading the, the, the book I was telling you about, Counterfeit Gods, by Tim Keller. And I recommend anything he writes. He's an amazing writer and theologian. But he takes this story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and he, he kind of uses it to, to leverage this idea of apocalyptic romance. And, and we're going to go through it this morning. And I think it's such a great um, picture of God showing us at the, I mean, this is in Genesis, at the dawn of time, what, what, uh, what can happen? All right, so Genesis 29, starting in verse 15, if you want to follow along with me. Let me just give you a little background. If you don't know who Jacob, Leah, and Rachel are, you've got Adam, and I'm not going to go through the whole deal. But you've got Adam, you know, and then you have the fall, and then you have um, uh, Noah's Ark, and then that, you know, God kind of restores things, and very quickly things get bad again. The Tower of Babel, then you've got Abraham, who is the father of many nations, right? He has a son that's supposed to, you know, start this whole Jewish nation called Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, right? And Jacob is kind of the key person in our story. So Jacob is at home. He steals his brother's birthright. If you know that story, you can go back in Genesis and, and read about it, how he steals his brother's birthright. Esau's brother's kind of ticked off, and the parents realize that Esau is going to kill Jacob because he's very angry about the whole bowl of soup and him fooling him thing. So he, they say, you need to grab all your stuff and take off. You need to go hang out with um, your mother's brother, Laban, your uncle, and, and, and find your wife there, find your life there. And uh, so Jacob takes off, and this is kind of where the story picks up in verse 15. All right. This is when Laban and Jacob kind of first meet. And they're talking, and they'd hugged it out, and here we go. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? 
Tell me, what shall your, your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now I love that scripture is real specific here. It doesn't say that Rachel is just beautiful. It says she is beautiful in form and appearance. So she's not just a pretty face. She got this whole deal going on. Going <laughs> and Jacob, we'll see here, has noticed how hot she is. And it says right after that, Jacob loved Rachel. It's like immediately, I mean, it's like they first met. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you. This must be, she must have been hot. I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. You talk about a smitten dude. Seven years. I could find the hottest, sweetest supermodel in the, on the planet. And I could tell you, just from knowing my college students, there's no way in heck they would ever work for seven years and wait for them for that. But he sees her, and immediately his reaction is, I love her. Her I love. I will do whatever you ask me to do. Seven years he's going to work for Laban. And that's what goes down. And he says, and I love it, it, it they, they, the scripture says, Jacob served for seven years, and it seemed but a few days. I mean, you're in love when it only seems like a few days. Time must be flying, because you're looking at her every day going, it's going to be sweet. All right, we pick it up in verse 21. Then Jacob says to Laban after the seven years, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, scripture's a little bit raw here. I'll just go out and say it. This is a PG service. I mean, could you imagine approaching your future father-in-law that way? I know I couldn't. I don't know if any of you know my story. My father did a couple tours in Vietnam and shot me. So going to him saying, give me what's right. Give me your daughter. Let me have sex with her right now. I mean, that's basically what that, that scripture says. Then Jacob said, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. That's what they did. That's how they rolled. But in the, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Uh-oh, what's going on here? They had a little feast. Laban said, have a little more wine, Jacob. Have a little more drink. Got him a little bit hammered. Sent him in his tent. And he sends his older daughter in there. The one that's not beautiful in form and all, you know, banging the pow. And he sends her in there. And this is the first instance in, lot, in, in Scripture, obviously, because it's Genesis of beer goggles. Because this, this is what goes down. So, in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. What in the world? He wakes up, rolls over and says, holy crap. Something went down that was not supposed to go down. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why, why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me for another seven years. And guess what? 28. Jacob did so. 
He did it. 14 years. I'll do it. Okay. I know you duped me and made me marry your older, not so attractive daughter, but I'm going to go ahead because I am absolutely smitten with Rachel. See, Laban saw something. As soon as he saw Jacob, saw his reaction to Rachel, he said, I can leverage this. I see somebody that is sick in love and that has come out of somewhere where he's been beaten and battered a little bit. You know, he's, his, his mom loved him and she was now gone. Dad didn't really ever love him. And he's thinking, if I could just get her, if I could just have her, she would complete everything. Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You know, if I could just have her this way, then everything, the, my world will be perfect. My world will be good. Everything will be set right again. And uh, the author in this book, Tim Keller, calls this the, the cosmic disillusionment. And then you've got Leah, who's in the same boat. Jacob spends his life pining after Rachel. And Leah spends her life, if you read, read on in Scripture, and I encourage that you do, she ends up in this boat always wanting Jacob's attention. And she has, she has children. God blesses her um, and, and lets her have children where Rachel struggles a little bit. And she says, maybe now, after each child, maybe now Jacob will love me. Maybe now he'll love me. And it's this disillusionment that that's where satisfaction comes from. That's where everything comes from. And uh, Jacob had it so bad that he, he blew 14 years of his life. And so many of us, this cosmic disillusionment, so many of us are in this boat where we... To put it frankly, we, we go to bed with a Rachel and we, we wake up with a Leah. And I don't mean that harshly and I'm not trying to knock marriage. But if you've put all of your hopes and your dreams and everything in a relationship, I can guarantee you, I mean the, the married folks in here can attest to some of it, that you get into the deal and you realize that they're imperfect just like you're imperfect. It's amazing that God uses marriage to sanctify because you've got two sinners and so let's take a couple sinners, we'll stick them together, put them in a house, let them have kids, and see if everything's great. Shocker! Not always rainbows and lollipops, right? You know, I don't know where you've come from in your life. I don't know what your story is. Maybe you're, um, maybe you're married and unhappy. There's this, you know, inequity in your in your marriage where somebody, you know, is not satisfying one part of the marriage, or maybe spiritually you're just on different planes. Or maybe you're married and happy, but you know, God's nowhere in the middle of it. And that's very possible. Maybe you're not married and you're hoping. I know a lot of my college students are in that boat. Not married and hoping. Maybe you've been through a broken relationship. Maybe you're divorced and you're cynical. Maybe you're single and loving it. I know a few of you guys. Um, but no matter what, I can tell you this. this uh, Ernest Becker, the Pulitzer Prize winner, says it like this. He says, no lover, no human being, is qualified for the role that was meant for God. No one can live up to that. The inevitable result is bitter disillusionment. No matter what we put our hopes in, it could be money, it could be sex, it could be something that you want that you think will satisfy you. No matter what we put, put our hopes in, in the morning, it's always Leah and never Rachel because that's not the place that we're supposed to put those things. The problem is twofold in relationships. In relationships, if you go into it thinking they're going to solve all your problems, they're going to fix everything that ails you. If I could only have her, if I could only have him, things would be awesome. The problem is, number one, they're going to let you down. They're going to let you down. I mean, I'll just be honest. I love my wife. I do. I love her to death. I love my kids. I love being married. But 
at, at times, it's hard. And at times, they let you down. And good gosh, I know I let her down. But the flip side of that is, is if you go into a marriage or a relationship, even a friendship, saying, this is going to, if I could only have this, it puts this undue burden on the other person that will inevitably crush them. C.S. Lewis says this. I love this quote. I might say it twice. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the probable explanation is I was made for another world, something supernatural and eternal. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the probable explanation is I was made for another world, something supernatural and eternal. Scripture says we're foreigners in a strange land. We weren't meant for this land. Things are going on outside in the world. We're placed smack dab in the world. And I, I, I think we're supposed to engage culture. But we have to be real careful about the way that we engage culture. The way that we view romance. The way that we view relationships. Because we could find ourselves in a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend. We can find ourselves in a marriage expecting things from our spouses and from the people in our lives that was never meant to be expected from them. And I'm not saying this is giving you the license to be a dirtbag in your marriage. Well, don't expect that from me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying all of our hopes and our dreams were meant for something else. Totally meant for something else. I'm not going to lie. I know what it feels like to want to be picked, want to be chosen. I mean, the beautiful thing about relationships is somebody decides to pick you. Somebody decides to choose you. And and you want that. I want to be picked. I want to be chosen. I want somebody to say, out of all these people, I picked you. Out of all these people, I picked you. I don't want her. I don't want her. I want you. I don't want him or him. I want you. You want somebody to sacrifice for you. You want somebody that's willing to die for you. You want somebody that's willing to go great lengths for you. It feels good. It satisfies something in our soul. It gives us something that's unexplainable. I mean, it's no wonder that the world's latched onto it and said, man, this, this is what we need to go for. But we're missing it just a shade. We're missing it just a shade. I'm going to read a poem that my, uh, that my wife wrote to my daughter when she was born, my daughter Ella. And it goes like this. Sweet daughter, I know a secret. Listen as I tell it to you. The secret is to your fulfillment in life. I promise you it's true. You must find a man who loves you, one who will never leave. Forget what the rest of the world says. Trust me and you'll see. You need a man to rescue you from every trouble that you have. One who listens to each word you say and wipes tears away from you when you are sad. A man that uh, looks into your eyes to say there's none like you. A man whose main objective is to love you through and through. The world will tell you, Ella, the answer is not a man. Well, don't believe a word of that. I've experienced it firsthand. A man can bring you joy no matter what you're going through. A man can carry your burdens and teach you what's right. And true, without a man, you can do nothing that will count eternally. And life's emptiness will crush your soul without a man on which to lean. Oh, one last thing. When I say a man, I refer to only one. He's your hero and your savior. It's Jesus Christ, your son. I cannot promise a life without pain or troubles only few. But with Jesus, you can face anything. I promise you, it's true. Now, There is somebody that's picked you, that's chosen you, that said, I want you. I want you. 
who's sacrificed not just a little, but sacrificed everything for you. Laid everything down for you. While relationships are good and God ordains them and says they're wonderful. If we put them in a place that's above where Jesus is supposed to be. We're setting ourselves up to be crushed. Let's pray.